A preacher was winding up his lesson on temperance. And as he was closing out his sermon, he said, we need to take all the beer in the world, throw it in the river. We need to take all the wine and the rum, the demon rum and all the whiskey and throw it into the river. He said, amen. He said, we'll not have the closing song. Song leader stood up. He called out that great hymnal number 126 and they begin to sing the hymnal. Shall we gather at the river? It is clear that a lot of people want to practice religion with their lips, but not with their lives. James wrote his letter, and he rebukes insincere religion. Matter of fact, he mentions what insincere religion is, as in James chapter 1, verse, 20, verse 26, where he says, pure and undefiled religion is what? To visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. And a lot of times you want to stop right there. But he says also, pure and undefiled religion is keeping oneself unspotted from the world. James believes that faith should be active and dynamic as far as a person's life is concerned. He believes faith works, that it is lived in action and not just lipped, as it were. But before a person can be full of faith, that person must empty himself. And if you are to live for God, and if you're going to approach God, you have to do so on his terms, not yours, not mine. I am not the standard of religion. God is the standard. He's the one that has placed the guidelines based upon what faith working looks like. So in the book of James chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, James says this, Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? The context of this whole setting is seen in the book of James, chapter 4, verse 1, where James begins chapter 4 with a question like he does in other places. What causes the fights and quarrels among you? And he answers it by saying, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? The reason why we have wars and fights and we can't get along and there's constant conflict is because of what's the war that is going on in our own lives. That's the reason why people are still at war with God. Me at times, I find myself being at war with God at times. And if there is any area of my life 
that I refuse to yield to the lordship of God, there's always going to be conflict and war. The hinge of this section of Scripture is verse 6. The hinge of this section of Scripture is verse 6. It's the pivotal point of this section. In the first previous five verses of the book of James chapter 4, he talks about what causes the wars and the problems among us as far as fighting and things of this nature. And then in chapter, in chapter 4 verse 7, he begins to declare how we take care of that problem. But verse 6 is the pivotal passage between those two, two sections. And notice what he says in verse 6. But he gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You want to stop the wars? You want to stop the infighting in our families, in the church? between people, between political parties. The only way that's ever going to take place is if we first learn how to submit. To humble ourselves before the God of creation. Do you know what the word submit means? Some of you who are, how many of you are in the military? For those of you that are in the military can appreciate this term because it's a military term. It means to get into rank. It means to align yourself. It means to form yourself under the command and the authority of another person. Anybody that's been in the military understands the importance of the chain of command. About those who have the authority and how we are to rank ourselves under those who are in Authority. And James is telling the Christians here that he's writing to, you want to stop the war and the fighting? The only way that's going to happen is if you get yourself finally in line with the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Rank yourself underneath. Have you ever had a car? And you was driving that car down the road and all of a sudden the steering wheel shaking like this and it's wanting to pull to the right or it's wanting to pull to the left? Now I'm not a mechanic, but I know one thing about that problem. My car is out of alignment. And you're going to have to take it to a mechanic. My dad didn't because he could do it himself. But you normally have to take it to a mechanic so they can get your tires in line with one another. And if you continue to drive your car that way, what happens? Man, you, you prematurely wear out the tires. You start getting knots on the inside and you start getting this wobbling and this, this judder in your car. And the only way to correct the problem is take it to an authorized mechanic so you can get that front in a line. That's the same way it is with us. We find ourselves being out of line. The reason why we have arguments and disputes and quarreling against one another, in our families, with our neighbors, with other people, is our lives are not aligned under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And James says, if you want to correct that problem, you need to get yourself aligned under the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's a simple answer, isn't it? 
Just get yourself aligned. But it is not easy to do. There is another passage in the Old Testament that rivals this one. That seems to go hand in hand with this passage. It's a, probably a very familiar passage to all of us. But if it's not, it's 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and is for, in verse 14. This is what the Lord God said to His people. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Who does God say is going to be given grace? In verse 6. God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And then in verse 10, He says what? Humble yourselves, therefore. Humble yourselves, therefore, before the Lord, and He will lift you up. I'm going to ask you a question. According to James 4 and 2 Chronicles chapter 7, whose responsibility is it to humble ourselves? Now, can God humble me? Oh, yeah. If you want to take a look at a picture of God humbling you, go back to the book of Daniel chapter 4 where we see a king who for seven years walked around like an animal eating the grass like an ox, with the dew of heaven falling upon him, and his nails growing as long as an eagle's claws. Because he dared to proclaim himself, as it were, a god. And God gave him seven years to think about that decision. And he humbled that king. How about... The Apostle Paul, was the Apostle Paul humbled? Yeah. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when you get a chance. Paul was lifted up into the third heaven and he saw things that he could have been pride filled with, things he was not allowed to talk about, glorious things. And the Bible says that God sent upon a messenger from Satan to keep him humble. And I believe it was some type of physical problem that Paul had. And he prayed to God three times, Lord, take this, take this from me. And God said, nope, my grace is sufficient for you. So the responsibility of humbling falls upon me. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and he will lift you out. But to do that, means you've got to be willing to raise the surrender flag. means that you need to sue, as it were, for terms of unconditional surrender. The problem is, is that we are not very good <laughs> at surrendering, are we? We like our power. We like to force our rights. We like to do what we want to do. And if you and I are going to humble ourselves, it means total, 100% un.
unconditional surrender to God. Now, we work out surrenderings and peace initiatives with our spouses at times, with our kids, with our neighbors, but typically they are not unconditional surrenders. There's a story told of a great evangelist and Bible teacher and Bible scholar. His name was Harry Ironside. And he told a story on himself that he was getting kind of concerned because of his giftedness and his ability to write and his ability to speak and things of this nature were causing him to maybe his ego to get a little bit blown out of shape and that he thought he maybe needed to humble himself. And so he sought out a a dear friend and got advice from that friend. That friend said, Harry, you really want to humble yourself? And he said, you better believe I do. I think my ego is getting a little bit larger. I I need to humble myself before God. He says, I'll tell you what to do then. I want you to go get yourself a sandwich board. Does anybody remember what a sandwich board is? All right. Sandwich, for those of you that don't, that's the board that you slip over your head, you get part here and part in the back and a couple of straps right here that keeps the board. You know what I'm talking about. All right, there you go. All right, he told Harry to go ahead and get one of those sandwich boards and then write on the front and the back of that board passages that talk about how people need to get themselves saved before the Lord. And then go down to one of the most busiest most prestigious part of Chicago, walk up and down the streets proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and telling people that got to be saved. Well, Harry did it. He went up and down the streets proclaiming how they needed to be saved, how they needed to repent, obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. And man, the cat calls came. People cussing at him, people just disparaging him, people giving him bad looks, booing at him and things of this nature. And when Harry got home that night, he was tired. He was wore out. He could hear, still hear the hollering of people at him. And he went into his room, closed the door, took off that sandwich board, sat down in his chair and he says, Lord, I bet you there's no other man that would have done something like that other than me. And I don't think he learned to think about what it means to humble your You see, folks, we're just not very good at humbling ourselves. And James is going to supply for us the terms of surrender that God gives us. And the first thing he says is in verse 7. In verse 7, he says this, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. In other words, he says, the first thing you've got to do is you've got to battle Satan furiously. You treat the devil like God treats the devil. And how does God treat the devil? What does he say? God opposes the devil. He opposes the proud. What was it that caused Satan to become the adversary of not only God, but of all mankind? He opposed God. And God opposed him. He was pride-filled. And God opposed him. The question is, how do we go about doing that? You and I are supposed to oppose the devil just like God opposes the devil. What is the power of Satan? What is, what is it, what is it that the, the power of Satan has over us? 
Or what is it the power of Satan uses against us? Is it not seduction? Is it not deception? Aren't those his tools that he uses against us? He's trying to get us through seduction and deception to buy into his lies. And people are doing it all the time. Sometimes even followers of God. And what is it called when you and I buy into the lie? It's called sin, isn't it? There was a story told about some ranchers, sheep ranchers up in Montana. And they were having a lot of problems with coyotes, packs of coyotes that were coming around and killing the sheep. Matter of fact, one lady sheep rancher had lost 50 sheep in one year. And they tried all sorts of things to take care of the problem. They got electric fences. They got, they got odor sprays that were supposed to keep these packs of coyotes away. But nothing was stopping them. And then she read an article about someone who had the same problem. And she discovered an idea that she was going to put into practice herself. What she discovered was that if you'll get llamas, that they will take care of your coyote problem. And you say, what? How does that work? It's, that's what happens. What happens is llamas are not like other animals that when they feel like there's something going out about them or there's some other creatures coming into their territory, they get scared and man, they just run away as fast as they can. Not llamas. They have a different attitude. Llamas, when they experience something that's out of order, out of sync, or that other strange creatures are coming around, they stick their head straight up and they go towards them. And so she tried it. She got a pack of llamas. And sure enough, when these coyotes started coming around, those llamas stuck their heads up and headed right towards those coyotes. And those coyotes didn't know what to do. And man, they rushed out of there. She had no more problems with coyotes. What's the moral of the story? If you've got sheep and they're being attacked by <laughs> You know what the moral of the story is? He says, if you and I are going to battle Satan furiously, then you and I are going to have to do what? We are going to have to resist the devil. Stand against him. Well, nobody can stand against Satan. Not on my own, I can't. But I want you to read a passage with me in the book of Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Many of you already know where I'm heading. Ephesians chapter 6 and in verse 10. Notice what Paul says. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you may take your stand against the devil's scheme. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this darkness, dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that... so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then, he says. And I find it interesting that that word stand in the Greek language in Ephesians chapter 6 is the same Greek word that is translated resist in the book of James chapter 4. You notice what James said not to do? He didn't say to run. He said to what? Stand. You stake your stand. You resist the devil. You stand against. You'd be like them llamas and say, no way, buddy. Get behind me, Satan. 
That's not happening to me. I'm not buying in your seduction. I'm not taking your deception. No way, no how. But how do you do that? Well, in verses 14 and verses following, he talks about the armor of God. And I want you to notice that all the armor of God has nothing to do with the back of the Christian. You ever notice that? There's nothing mentioned about the back. He's talked about the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness. But not the back. Why? Because we do not run. We are to what? Stand. We are to resist the devil at every hand and in every turn. You'll notice that Paul will say in Ephesians chapter 6 that I must be, listen to it, strong in the Lord. Strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Notice he says, you bank on my resources. You don't trust in yours. You take your stand in my powerful resources. Folks, you and I are not fighting for victory. Do you understand that? We are not fighting for victory. We are fighting from Victory. We're already victorious. The war has been won by Jesus Christ. Let me tell you a story about Napoleon Bonaparte. He had laid a map before all of his generals as the war was going on. And he put his finger down on a red dot on the map that he had placed before them. And he said, if it were not for that red dot, I could rule the world. And you know what that red dot was? The British Isles. Now I want you to think about something. I, I don't think it happened, but you can imagine it possibly happening. There's Satan looking over the world, holding with his evil angels and demons, and him pointing to a spot on the map. A red dot. And he says to his evil horde, if it not had been for that red spot, I could have ruled the creation of God. Does anybody know what that red spot is? It's the cross of Jesus Christ. And the Hebrew writer tells us in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, that through the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, God brought Satan to a zero. Nothing. Crushed his head. Just as he forecasted in the book of Genesis chapter 3 and in verse 15. Folks, we stand in that victory. And if you are going to be part of the victorious celebration, it comes by kneeling at the cross. Secondly, he says... You need to pursue God. Battle Satan furiously, but pursue God vigorously. Look at verse 8. Look at verse 8 back in the book of James chapter 4. For he says there, come near to God and He will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. I would like to suggest to you that coming near to God is the chief way that you can resist the devil. 
Does anybody know the name Barbara Yarborough? No, he wasn't a race car driver. <laughs> I'm not talking about Bobby Yarborough. I don't know the man either. I just heard the story about a kid who knew him. Ray grew up with a boy named Bobby Yarborough. Did anybody ever have a bully on the block when you was growing up? Well, to this kid here, Bobby Yarborough was the block bully. And this, this boy was talking about when he was growing up, he had some friends, and they'd take minibikes out to this vacant lot. And man, they would drive their minibikes around and have a lot of fun until Bobby Yarborough showed up. His dad had bought him not a minibike, but a motorcycle. And he would get on that lot with those boys and he would just brush up against them and he just basically virtually run them off. He said that any bad word he had ever learned, he had learned from Bobby Yarborough. I mean, this guy was a mean, mean dude. Until one day, that boy says, he says, I remember one day my dad came down to that lot with us while we rode our minibikes. And he said, Bobby Yarborough didn't come near to us. And he says, I found out one thing. When you're close to the father, you don't have to worry about any bullies that are on the block. And that's true with our God. You pursue God vigorously. But you don't get close to God without making a move in your life. And somebody says, well, why do I have to make the first move? Why am I the one that has to draw near to God? Shouldn't He be drawn near to me anyway? It's because you're the one that left. There's a reason why you need to draw near. God doesn't leave. God doesn't change. God doesn't need to move. You and I are the ones that need to make the decision to humble ourselves. And the reason why you and I are the ones that need to make the move is to verify whether or not to ourselves and to the heavenly host whether or not we're serious about serving the Lord or just flirting with the Lord. One guy described flirting when he was in the college. He said we would flirt with girls. But sometimes they would flirt in a way that gave another signal to a girl and they thought they were being serious and they had to back off. Because <laughs> they weren't being serious at that point. They were just flirting with the girls. But they weren't really serious about having a deep relationship. And you see having a relationship with God is not something you just casually drift into. Any revival that you read about in the Scriptures started with people who intentionally and intensely sought God. I go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 14. If my people will humble themselves and seek my face, Jeremiah will say in Jeremiah 29, verse 13, you'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 7, the Lord said, return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord God Almighty. God is going to fill us with Himself 
if we are hungry for Him. And if you don't feel close to God, and if you don't feel like you're being filled with God and the Holy Spirit, you need to ask yourself, who moved? See, God knows when He has been genuinely invited in and when we're just talking the talk. And so Jesus will say, I stand at the door and I knock. But to open it, it has to come from the inside. It has to come from within me. You say, well, I've asked God to come into my life and it doesn't seem that He shows up. Why? I think verse 9 will tell us. James chapter 4, verse 9. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. In other words, he says, whatever you do, wash your hands and purify your hearts and turn your laughter into mourning. Folks, it is sin that keeps us distant from God. And James says, sin is no laughing matter. When you watch TV, when you watch movies at times, doesn't it seem to you that the producers and those who play these parts are doing everything they can to get people to laugh at sin. Do you ever find yourself laughing at sin? When you're watching a show and they say something filthy or dirty or they make a joke that's off-colored. Do you ever find yourself laughing at sin? Now, James is not suggesting that the tenor of our lives ought to be lives that are a consistent attitude of being negative, down, and just crying all the time. But he is suggesting this, that any real revival in my heart, in my life, needs to be preceded by an all-out call to repentance. If my people will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, what does God promise? If they will turn from their wicked ways, I will hear their prayer. I will forgive their sins. I will heal their land. Our political system and leaders need to hear this. Our country is being torn apart. because they refuse to humble themselves. Many of us are possibly like me at times. Maybe you're this way. At times I find myself being content to have a mild distaste for sin, but not a strong disgust for sin. Story told about a preacher who was 
praying with one of his members. And he says, I'll never forget it, that in the midst of the prayer, his brother said something in the prayer that struck him to the core. He said, Lord, let me get nauseous about sin. And he said, whoa, I'm not sure I can go that far. He said, I don't know, I don't know if I'm there yet. I mean, I can have a distaste for sin, but God wants us to have a disgust for sin. Something that makes us nauseous when we see it, when we hear it. God wants us to powerfully present in our lives, to be present in our lives, not just to be on the fringe of our lives, but in it. But terms that you and I come to the Lord on are His. I don't make the terms. God is the one that makes the terms of unconditional surrender. Joel said this, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, and your heart, rend not, not, your heart and not your garments, return to the Lord God, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and He relents from sending calamity. I want to let you know, folks, God is eager and wants to be in our lives. But He wants you to determine whether or not you are serious about it or not, or whether we are just flirting with God. The psalmist will say, the Lord is close to those whose hearts are breaking. He rescues those who are humbly sorry for their sins. And James says this, that humility demonstrates itself not just by regretting sin, but by removing sin. Wash your hands, purify your hearts. Many of you may have heard that story about Aaron, uh, Aaron Ralston. He was an experienced hiker and mountain climber, and he was up in Utah's Land, Land Canyon National Park. He was the one that slipped down a ravine and got his arm caught between two rocks, two stones. He could not get him, and a boulder came down and locked his arm down. He could not get his arm out of there. So what did he decide to do? Well, he waited. This happened on Tuesday night. I mean, Saturday night or Saturday afternoon. And he thought he tried to struggle to get out of there, but he decided he was just going to have to wait it out for somebody to come by and find him. Nobody came by. That happened Saturday. By Tuesday, he was out of water. By Wednesday, he says, if I don't do something, I'm going to die. And so he did something. He would break his two bones in his forearm. He would take out and he would tie a tourniquet just above his elbow. He would take out his pocket knife and he would cut his arm off. Then he got an anchor. Somehow he was able to form an anchor. And he was able to shimmy down that crevice. And finally walking away from where he had been pinned, a helicopter a few hours later found him wandering in the wilderness. Now folks, I don't know about you, but that's pretty radical. 
But when your life is on the line, we tend to do radical things. That sounds a lot like Matthew chapter 5, verse 30, isn't it? Where Jesus says, if your eye sins, do what? Pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, what? Cut it off. Now, was Jesus saying literally do it? No. What is He saying? We need to be serious about sin. Because your life, your eternal life, my eternal life, depends on it. The price for peace with others and with God is unconditional surrender. And God is the one that decides what real submission looks like. And one of the ways in which you and I show our submission to God is seen in verse 11 and verse 12. And guess what we're not going to be able to do? Time's up. So next Sunday, Lord willing, if given the next Sunday, we'll take a look at what real humility and submission looks like. But let me give you a heads up. Do not judge your brother. Now, are all judgments wrong? No. Then what is he talking about? You come back next Sunday, we'll talk about it. Praise God for you being here today. If you have any need whatsoever, would you come as together we stand and sing?